between our earthly experience and our heavenly experience. That yes, things are going to be massively different, but um, things will also be very much the same. In fact, do this with me, if you will. Everybody close your eyes. You can trust me. Just close your eyes. And I want you to picture, with your eyes closed, I want you to picture a memory. And, and I want you to, to, to try to come up with something closest to a favorite memory. A favorite moment from your past. I want you to picture where you were, what you were doing, the people that were around you or not around you. I want you to try to conjure up those feelings. To remember what, what you felt like in those moments that made it so good. What made it the thing that you now look back on as a, a, a greatest memory. What you were doing, why you were doing it, and who you were with, and how you felt. And now with your eyes still closed, I want you to, to think back to that memory and identify things about it that were broken. People that weren't there. Pain that was present. Disappointment that you felt in the moment. Maybe relational strife that was just simmering under the surface with some of the people around you. Try and picture both the good and the evil in that moment. What if I, what if I told you that that moment, and that experience that you're picturing now is the closest thing to heaven that you've experienced here on earth. That if you took that moment that you are picturing and removed all those elements of sin and brokenness and relational strife and just, just not just erased them, but healed them, that the relational strife just didn't, didn't just go away, but it had actually been healed and redeemed and reconciled and so was stronger. That whatever was going on around you was perfect. What if I told you that instead of being some sort of eternal worship service in the clouds, that heaven was the perfect life without sin, without pain, eternally living with God and loved ones in an ongoing exploration of God's world? can open your eyes. I think that's what heaven's going to be like. And I think I can prove it from the scriptures. But for me, the first time somebody led me kind of through a similar exercise, it was the very first time in my life that I thought, oh, I might like heaven. Because I pictured my friends and I pictured my family. And I pictured us doing things that we enjoyed doing. I pictured the things that I loved the most. We were playing games and, and uh, outside in the sun and all of our favorite people were there and we were cooking meat and we were drinking drinky things and, we, it, and it, was, it was wonderful. And I remember sitting there in this perfect weather thinking, I hope this never ends. I wish this could never end. But even then, I think back and I can picture some of the people that were there, I, you know, could have wished they weren't. 
I remember certain things not being the best or the greatest and remember certain things being regrettable about it, even though it's one of my greatest memories. When I, when I think of vacation, um, I think of um, a, a beach house and uh, a beach house, you know, near the beach, but not too near the beach because I'm not a sand person. And so a beach house where I can sit on the patio and, and uh, relax while my kids are playing in the sand and they're in my kind of idealized heavenly vacation mind, they're playing really well together. They're sharing, <laughs> helping each other with stuff, building sandcastles together and just blessing one another. While I sit from a safe distance and just watch it all unfold with great pride and joy about my family. And, and, I, and I think that this is something that's deep within me. And it's deep within all of us. I, I think, and, and I can't speak for everyone, but I think that if I were to get up and describe this, this majesty of heaven that is entirely non-physical and ethereal and, and, and kind of... Uh, 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 an experience that we've never had before and cannot in a first-person way relate to in any way that we'd kind of go, okay. But if I said, imagine yourself on a mountain or imagine yourself on a beach or imagine yourself in a library, imagine yourself with all your best friends or imagine yourself by yourself in the middle of a forest or imagine yourself eating all of your favorite meat or imagine yourself eating all your favorite vegetables. No, that's hell, Never mind. The <laughs> imagine something that you know and you've experienced but pull out of it every ounce of pain and hurt and sin. I think to that, there's something deep within us, something really honest within us that goes, yeah, I want that. Give me that. And I think the reason that we respond that way to the very real and very physical and respond with kind of blah to this idea of ethereal and non-physical, it's because we were made for one and not for the other. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Turn there. If you've got your Bible, I want to take just a minute to prove to you this little paradigm that I think we can explore. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. For the Christian, this is the beginning. This is God's intention in creation. I say that, uh, that for the Christian, this is true because I know that there are some here that are not Christians. And I, and I know that all of this conversation seems a little bit crazy. And I, I get that. But I do, I will challenge you before I get to Genesis, that if you're here and you're not a Christian and you think, oh my gosh, you're heaven, I mean, are we really talking about this? Um, the challenge that I have for you to just consider, if you would, is what, if, if not heaven, if not anything, if it's just literally 83.7 years and dead, as the average is or thereabouts, um, then, then why wake up in the morning? Like, why care about anything? Like, if nothing you do matters beyond the, your, your deathbed, then, man, why sacrifice for anything? Why, why pursue anything? I mean, just, like, wring out every ounce of fun and enjoyment that you could possibly get out of life and then die already. So, like, don't be here. Like, like, I know I'm kind of funny, but like not worth spending an hour of your very limited life. And so I, I think that having some vision of eternity 
I think one resonates with the everyday reality of our soul that every single one of us lives as if there is going to be some sort of future accountability. Every single one of us lives with some deep desire to survive and it's a desire that's in us that's not in the animals, that's not in any other living being, that there's something uniquely human about a desire for the afterlife. Like literally every single human throughout history has had some vision of eternity. There's something in us at the deepest levels that says, this can't be it. So for us, this is the answer. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man, and that's mankind, in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image or icon, as our name suggests. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis 1, 26 through 2, 3 gives us a vision of God's creative intention. That when God set out to create the universe, to create our world, to create human beings and all of the plant and animal life, every inch of this creation, this was his intention. That from the very beginning, he intended human beings to live in a physical universe. From the very beginning, he intended for us to interact with the creation around us, to have relationship with that creation. That has always been his intention from the very beginning. So if it's if we uh, can can kind of agree to and and understand the fact that God from the beginning set out to create a world that was physical, that us humans could be in, live in, thrive in, and that this is what we were made for, why, why would we ever think that what he has made for us for eternity would be something opposite of that? Instead of physical, ethereal, and non-physical. Instead of cultivation and care and creation, some sort of eternal sing-along. Why, why would he give us the raw materials of this world and say, cultivate, and then for eternity just say, strum on the harp, or do, do whatever kind of, kind of cultural envisioning that we have for heaven? It makes no sense. When God got done creating this world in Genesis 1 and 2, he said, it is very good, and now I will rest, because every ounce of my intention has been played out in this creative work. This is what humans were made for. Now, we see in Genesis 3, if you know the story of, of the world, story as told by Christianity, that we move from creation to fall, that rebellion and sin and, and all of this brokenness entered into the world and that God's redemptive work on the cross uh, in Christ turns back the work of sin in the world with some hope for 
future restoration. So here at ICON, we say it as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So the story is cyclical, right? That we start with God's intention in creation that human rebellion and sin has altered our experience of this world, that Christ's redemptive work came to undo the effects of sin. And if we simply take them at their word and talk about undoing the effects of sin or pulling out the effects of sin on the earth, we wouldn't then, if we kind of removed all the sin, find a non-physical universe left over. We would simply find what God's original intention in creation is. So we would say that Satan's power, human's power to pervert and destroy God's intention never overcome God. That no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we rebel, we cannot undo, we do not have the kind of power to undo what God has done and what God's intention was. Okay, so theologically, I think that makes clear sense. But even the Bible itself bookends itself in Genesis and Revelation, the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation, bookends itself in a way to drive this point home. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we are told that God's presence was on the earth with Adam and Eve, that he moved about with in direct relationship within their presence. We skip ahead to Revelation 21 verse 3 and it says that the presence of God has come to earth again in the new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis 2 9 we see the tree of life. In Revelation 22 we see the tree of life again. In Genesis 3, 1 through 7, we see the advent of sin. In Revelation 21, 27, we see the end of sin. In Genesis 3, 14 to 19, we see the first judgment. In Revelation 20, we see the last judgment. In Genesis 3, we see the curse brought down upon this earth. In Revelation 22, 3, John says there will be no curse anymore. In Genesis 3, 15, we see redemption promised. In Revelation 21, 5 to 8, we see redemption accomplished. That even literarily, thousands of years apart from one another, from different authors, in different parts of the world, We see the connection made that what was intended in Genesis is restored in Revelation over and over and over and over and over. That God's plan cannot and will not be thwarted. And Paul himself uses the word physical, right? So we say heaven is a physical place because spiritual does not mean non-physical, right? So we see that word and we hear that heaven is described as a spiritual place where we have spiritual bodies, we're spiritual beings, and we think non-spiritual. But that's not even how Paul uses the word. In 1 Corinthians 3, which we've already taught in this series, he says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Is he saying I couldn't address you as non-physical people? No, obviously not. Over and over and over, Paul uses the word spiritual not to describe the opposite of physical, but the opposite of fleshly, the opposite of sinful. This is the transition that's taking place. Besides, heaven is referred to as having gardens, cities, kingdoms, buildings, banquets, bodies, trees, houses, rivers. 
This is an extremely physical environment that the scriptures describe for us. In Romans chapter 8, this amazing chapter, one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, Paul takes a little side note in verse 18 and says this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, hear that, the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, Genesis 3, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. So Paul says that the same way we desire redemption, in the same way we re- desire to be restored, so too does the rest of God's creation. We long for a return to Eden, where God walked with man and where God and man had perfect unity. We long for very real uh, experience of the human life, long for good fathers and good mothers, for fulfilling work, for intimate relationships, for ceaseless exploration, for unlimited learning and close relationship with our creator. God's plan from the beginning was Eden and it still is. The only difference between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 is the city. And all that means is that we have this arc of cultivation that has taken us from a garden to a city with a garden in the middle of it. And that's the cultivating work that God set us to at the very beginning. So if we are ever going to imagine heaven, and I think we should, I think we have spent far too little time imagining heaven, given that it is kind of the goal. When we start to imagine heaven, it gets kind of exciting. I don't, I don't know about you, but I think about very specific things about heaven. There's a whole lot of things that I have wanted to do in this world that I have at times mourned the fact that I couldn't do, that I go, but in heaven I could. I could learn languages, starting with English. <laughs> I can read. I mean, there's, I walk through uh, bookstores and have to put my hands in my pockets because I will just buy all the books. And I don't have time to read them all, but I want to read them all because I, I want to know all the things. And this vision of heaven, I go, I will get to learn I will get to learn for all eternity and just read and read and read and read. And then I can take some time off, like a century or so, and master the guitar or master. I mean, it's eternity, guys. And it's eternity doing the things that we love the most without the constraints of sin. One of the things I think about all the time is camping. I know that probably seems small. I love the idea of camping. But I will not camp until heaven because 
I don't know if I mentioned this before, I have five young children. And camping with five young children sounds like terribleness. And so I will wait till heaven when they are perfect. <laughs> when there will be no bugs and, and, and the ground will not be hard and bumpy and I will get a good night's sleep and there will not be bears outside my tent. And, or at least there'll be nice bears. Maybe we'll, we'll cuddle a little. I don't know. But there are certain things that I go, man, that thing sounds kind of good, but pull sin out of it and it sounds really good. I'll do that one in heaven. And, and I know this is a joke, but it's, this is it. This is reality. This is the biblical vision of heaven. That what God created is what he intended and there's nothing we can do or Satan or anybody else can do to thwart God's intention. And so what he had in mind for us was eternity on this earth, cultivating and creating and caring for and learning and knowing him forever without death or sin or pain or trauma. And that sounds pretty good. Now, there's a lot of questions and I don't have the answers to all of them. But I think that gives us a paradigm for how to think about the way the world might be in eternity. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, verse 58. Here's where it gets good. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hear what he just said. This ties to what I was saying earlier, that he says, first, therefore, and this trick my youth pastor taught me, anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, it's there for a reason. And it's always to tie a point, a theological idea, to an action. This is what therefore is, or to tie one idea to the next idea to eventually get to action. Paul, at the end of this winding road of 1 Corinthians 15, finally gets to the therefore. He goes, here's what you got to do. If this is true, if resurrection is true, and it was bodily, and it was physical, and it's the first fruits of what we'll experience, and this is what heaven's going to be like, therefore, be steadfast, immovable. Don't be tossed around by different ideas or different experiences. Don't be weighted down by the pain and the suffering of this world. Don't be swung away and struck by all of the challenges that we experience in this life. Don't let it move you off your conviction. Because we know. I mean, any Christian that cries out to God when bad things happen and doesn't understand it has just simply not read much of the Bible. We, as much as anyone, should have an expectation of brokenness. It is in the third chapter of our book that everything went sideways. We should go through life expecting things to be going sideways and to be thankful when they don't. And so Paul says, listen, if we have this view of the gospel that is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and that makes sense of the world in a really satisfying way because there's something in all of us, whether we're Christian or not, that goes, something's not the way it should be. It's not all right. This, this testifies to the story that the Bible tells us. The story that has defined the universe in so many ways. That says, yeah, you know that little thing in you that says this is not what it's supposed to be like? You're right. And it wasn't always. And it won't always be. 
And there's a reason why. It's Jesus. And that, that speaks to every human's experience of a longing, of walking outside and feeling sunshine and being like, oh, this is good. And then looking down at, the, at your phone and seeing that it's going to be raining for the next five days and go, no, 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 no. <laughs> so Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, and here's the key piece, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. What does that mean? Well, I want to I speak to the second part first. The idea that our labor is in vain means this. If there is an eternity, what you do today has meaning. It's not vain. It's not vanity. It's not, as Solomon and Ecclesiastes talks about, it's not, it's not a vapor. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. It, does, it, it lasts. What you do, the decisions you make, the words that you say, the relationships that you have, all of it matters beyond just its impact in the today. It's not in vain. If there is literally nothing beyond this and we are just worm food until the sun burns us up and that's, that's the story of the universe, then our labor is very much in vain. It's all much ado about nothing. But Paul says, but if this is true, abound in the works of the Lord, continue in the Lord's work because it's not in vain. It has eternal implications to it. So then the question is, what is the work of the Lord? Is it ministry? Yes and no. Is it living morally? Yes and no. Think about it. If God's command to Adam and Eve was and is our first calling, that section we read from Genesis 1, 26 to 2, 3, then the cultural mandate, which is what that's called, to cultivate and create and care for, that is the work of the Lord. That's the work that the Lord has given to us to cultivate and create God's creation. Now, does that uh, have redemptive impact? Absolutely. Is there a, a moral sense to that? For sure. There, there is a way of being in the world that is what God created us for and the work that he gave us to do. To take the raw materials of his world, put them together, and make stuff. And then when sin enters the world, we go, okay, now one plus one should equal two, but it doesn't because we're frustrated by sin and it's broken. And so then we have to work redemptively. And there is a moral aspect to how we do that. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. There are such a thing as ethics. So yes, does it have a moral uh, impact to it? Is it ministry? Well, sure, in the same sense that what Jesus was doing on the earth was ministry. He was testifying to the truth about the world, and he was healing broken things. This is ministry, and this is the work that he's given us to do. This is the work that he has laid in front of humans, and that has never changed. That has always been the work, cultivating caring for and creating in the world God made us to live in. That's ministry in the truest sense. It's moral in the fullest sense. And it's being eyes, image bearers of God, people who walk out, live out the vision that God gave us that reflect his glory and his character. It's being icons in the, in the most literal sense. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, if you read history you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world 
were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who build up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is only since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective, ineffective in this. Aim in heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. If heaven is real, then the work we do here matters because it points backwards to God's intention and therefore his character. And it points forwards in hopeful expectation of what is to come, which testifies in faith to God's strength, his love, his power, and it makes the world demonstrably and tangibly better because we are living out that truest purpose. Our work here means something because it testifies to a deeper truth about the world. And it has the potential to last into eternity, which should motivate us to deeper and more profound work in the world. Now, here's the bad news. The bad news is that we'll never do this. Not consistently. Because for many of us, this, the, the so what of this, of doing good ministry, moral work, is, you know, doing good work in the world and all of this is not new news, right? Like it may be a slightly different version of something we've heard before. And it's the same thing that we don't really do with any consistency now. And I think that there are two reasons and they're related. One is that we love this world to overestimate what this world can give us. And this, this uh, manifests itself in a number of different ways. We get stressed out and, and, and focused on the trivialities of the world that are in front of us. The things that are right in front of us just seem like such a big deal and so important that we've got to do them because everything depends on it. It's so important because I'm so important and my work matters because I matter. And if my work doesn't matter, then I don't matter. And so I've got to stress out about what's right in front of me and I don't have time to think about eternity which is overestimating what the world can offer. I think there's another way this manifests and it maybe is stereotypically uh, millennial in nature, but it's the, the kind of FOMO uh, perspective on life, the kind of wanderlust that I see in so many young people and am honestly jealous of your ability to travel because you don't have children. But there's, there's an underlying assumption there that, man, while I'm young, I got to go see the world. And I think if you have eternity in mind, that, that's a, that's a, that becomes a very foolish way to think about the world. There's a lot of world. And there's a lot of good to be seen. And in Christ, we have a long time to go explore it. I, I don't have to see the world during this 80 years or so I have here on earth because I have eternity to do that. And the places I want to see will be even more glorious if I don't have to deal with other tourists. <laughs> so I'm patient and willing to wait. So I think we can love the world too much, but I think we can also hate the world too much. And that prevents us from doing this. 
We've experienced too much pain, too much trauma. We want to escape. So this idea that, the, that eternity is a lot like this world is, is bad news for some of us. Because we want to escape. We want it to be different. We don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to feel the trauma. We don't want to remember it. We don't want to be in this city anymore. We don't want to see things that will remind us of the pain. So this feels like bad news because we just want something non-physical and spiritual and ethereal because it's just anything but this. I think there's another version of that that's, that feels more benign, but it's maybe more insidious because it's not so extreme as the pain and trauma. But it's just hard to do substantive work. It's hard to work hard. It's hard to, to care deeply about something. It's hard to do the kind of moral work that re-knits the fabric of creation in the way that God has offered to us. It's far easier to just work a job, make some money, go on some vacations, take some pictures, post them online, and count the likes. It's just easier. So we have this kind of low view of the world. This just kind of low-grade flu-like symptoms about the world. It's not awful. It's not terrible, but it's just, it's just not that good. But see, what both of these two things have in common is they both underestimate Jesus. Whether we love the world too much or we hate the world too much, either way, we underestimate Jesus. And I think Paul tells us this in verse 56 and 57. We'll end here. After saying, death is swallowed up in victory, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. This is an interesting, interesting sentence that I, I wish I had more time to unpack. But he basically says, death has no sting, it has no real consequence, no reality without sin. And sin doesn't exist without law. If there is no moral absolute, it's impossible to rebel against it. So sin, only the idea of sin only exists in relationship to law. But see, law is unavoidable. Even the most ardent atheist has a law that they adhere to, be it honesty or tolerance or whatever. Law is impossible to avoid. And law brings sin because we inevitably fail to live up to even our own contrived law. And sin brings death. Our only hope is that we are captured by the victory of Jesus. So he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul is a guy who's been captured by us. Not just, yeah, 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 kind of belief in it, but has been captured. To the degree, to the degree that he says, I mean, this, this little passage that looks like a quote is kind of a, uh, kind of a cobbled together quote of a couple of different passages from the Old Testament where he's basically calling out death. Like he's, he's smack talking death, right? Like I, I, I'm a sports guy. I was, I was uh, researching smack talk this week for the sermon and, uh, and, and found this great video on YouTube where Jerry Stackhouse, this old basketball player, was smack-talking Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was this good basketball player before y'all were born. And, um, and, and, and the, the whole video was about how Jordan just went basically like, all right, fool, and, and owned Jerry Stackhouse in this game. And this was one of the many things that I saw. And he just was owning him to a degree that he scored uh, 58 points and had 10 rebounds and then pulled himself out of the game in the third quarter just to rub it in. That's kind of what Paul's doing to death here. 
He is calling out death, saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, hey, death, where is your victory? Hey, death, where is your sting? C.S. Lewis famously said that the death rate is currently at 100% and doesn't seem to be falling. So of all the things to call out, death would seem to be one of the most difficult, and yet Paul does, because Paul is captured by this vision of what Jesus has accomplished. He says, the sting of death is sin, the power of, death, power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory for, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That listen, death, you've got nothing on us. Your fate has been sealed and you will be rolled back. The effects that you have wrought upon this world will be rolled back because the victory has already been won. Jesus has won the victory and that's it. And so whether we hate the world too much or love the world too much, all of it underestimates Jesus because if we love the world too much, we underestimate the world that he's created for us and what that might be like, what might the power of someone who has overcome death be to actually roll back its effects? So if we hate this world and we want to skip it, I would submit to you to just wait to see what the one and only person who has defeated death might have in store for the world in terms of undoing what has been done. In the Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee asked Gandalf, is everything sad going to become untrue? The answer is yes. I'm still cool and I am not a nerd. Our only hope is that we are captured by the victory of Jesus, that we would really see the world he made for us and desire that more strongly than we desire with this short time between the gardens can offer. Or if imagining this world forever is too difficult, that we would at least be able to desire to be with the one who didn't, didn't hesitate to do the hard work, who stayed focused on the mission at hand, even in the face of opposition and exaltation, that at least we would want to be a part of whatever future Jesus has made for us. Believing that if he loved us enough to die for us, earning the victory over death, that he might just love us enough to create an eternity in which we will thrive. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the work that you have accomplished that we never could. Lord, thank you that you defeated death so completely, so fully, so finally that we can fully hope, not just in the restoration of all things one day, but we can hope to experience joy in this one because we have access to your victory today and not just in eternity. So God, I pray that we would live tomorrow and the next day and the next day and every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in light of eternity, that we would see our work and know that we are building for eternity. That we would see our relationships and consider their eternal impact. That we would never stop working and doing your work because our labor is not in vain. The work that we do here is not in vain. It doesn't go away. It doesn't evaporate into a vapor, but it is meaningful 
and enduring in a way that our souls long to be true. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as always, we'll move into a time of response, and we'll do this in a couple of different ways. Sean's going to lead us in a few more songs. We'll take communion, give offering together. Uh, But before we do that, we want to spend just a couple of minutes in reflection. We don't get a lot of time to just reflect on things in our lives. And so I want us to take the next two minutes and just sit in quiet reflection, think and pray about what we've heard tonight. So let's do that together.